Um, so I just want to start, first of all, um, with a question. Um, and the question is, what is the most valuable thing that you own? And I'm going to get you to tell the person next to you as well. So you can do that now. So what is the most valuable thing that you own? You have permission to talk. Okay, hopefully that's been enough time uh, to work that out. And hopefully as well, you know the person next to you just a little bit better than you did before. Um, so for me, the th one of the things that I would say is very valuable to me um, is I've actually brought it with me. So it's a bit like show and tell at school. Um, so, Ro, if you could hold it up for me. So this, yeah, it's a thing of beauty. This is a signed football boot of Ledley King. Now, if you're into football, hopefully you know who he is. So I'm a big Tottenham fan, and he was a football player for Tottenham. He stayed at the club for his whole career. Um, he was also always injured, a bit like me. Always injured, um, but he used to play every single weekend. He did no training, he just turned up, and he was still one of the best, I would say anyway, one of the best defenders the Premier League has ever seen. Um, I know that's a bit of a stretch, but for me, he is anyway. <laughs> um, so, this, yeah, I got this for my birthday. My parents got it for me. Um, and I was, yeah, I was very overjoyed when I received it. But as you can tell by the dust on it, it isn't allowed out in the house in pride of place like I would like it to be. It's been in the loft, I think, pretty much everywhere we've lived. But I still, ca I still count it very valuable to me. But Roe calls it clutter, which I find, I find very offensive. Um, and it has actually managed somehow to survive all of our house moves. Um, because what I do, because Roe... She tries to accidentally drop it every time. Um, I make sure it's triple wrapped in bubble wrap, taped up, and I make sure my eyes are on it for the whole journey, whether in the van or the car, I'm watching it like a hawk, just to make sure it can make it there. Um, so yeah, so it's got, it's got a bit of a sentimental value to me. It's got a bit of uh, monetary value as well. Um, and then another thing that I've got, another item that is valuable to me, and this actually isn't even in my loft, this is in my parents' loft. Um, and it's actually an artwork that I did at GCSE. And I'm going to show you a picture in a minute of it. Um, now, Leonardo da Vinci is a big influence of me when I come to my art. I love the work of Monet. Van Gogh, amazing. So you'll be able to see in a minute their influences, I think, on this piece of artwork. So, Tommy, if we could go to the next slide. Hopefully it'll come up in a second. Here it is. So this is a... You'll probably be able to tell anyway. I don't need to tell you. It's a, it's a clay model of Wayne Rooney. And I did this for my GCSE, and I actually got an A for this, would you believe it? Um, but actually, this, I, I was really proud of this at, at that time, um, and I actually am, I think I still am quite proud. Now, this, doesn't, this has a, a, kind of a sentimental value, more than a monetary value, as you can see. Um, but what I'm hoping for is most artists, I think they're appreciated more after they've died. So what I'm hoping is after, after I've died, the value of this is just going to skyrocket... And whoever I leave this to in my will, they are very, very lucky. It's going to be worth a lot of money. You heard it here first. Um, anyway, all jokes aside, this has, yeah, a really big... Um, it has got big sentimental value, but not really much of a monetary value, um, as I said. Um, so, it, what I'm trying to illustrate with this is, it's very easy, isn't it, to fill our lives with things that we actually perceive as very valuable, which ultimately 
No, not really. Um, and there's nothing wrong with valuing things in our life. That's absolutely fine. But if we're not careful, what happens is these things actually take our gaze away from what is truly valuable. Um, so we're going to be focusing today on the story of someone who sacrificed what was most valuable to them in an act of extravagant worship. Um, so while Toller comes up, because he's going to read it for us, um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 14, because that's what we're going to spend today looking through, it'll also be on the screen behind as well, um, so you can follow it there. So Toller, do you want to come up? Okay, I've got my shoes on, and I support Arsenal. <laughs> so... I'm going to read from Mark chapter 14, um, starting from verse 1. Um, it's the plot to kill Jesus. Um, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and killing. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and wherever you want, you can do good for them. But you not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before and for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. The last verse. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So this is actually it's a really interesting passage in the Bible. A section of this chapter, so from verses 3 to 9, appears in each of the four Gospels. Um, it's, a, it's the same exact story in Matthew 26. It's the same in John 12, but just with the addition of some of the names and of the characters involved. Um, and a very similar story as well is told in Luke. Um, but people much cleverer than me say that the story in Luke is actually not the same because Jesus was in a different location during his ministry at this point. Um, now, it's really important to just note the subtle differences that happen in each account of this story. And I've noticed over the years with the Bibles that actually nothing is ever by accident. There's always a purpose. So we're going to unpack some of those subtle differences later on. The fact that this appears in the Gospels multiple times just shows us that God really wants us to take notice of this encounter. I mean, Jesus himself says in verse 9, Wherever the Gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And it's amazing to see in this one verse how much truth there is. It can be thought of as just a bit of a throwaway comment. Um, But this verse is being fulfilled today. That story happened 2,000 miles away, 2,000 years ago, and yet it's being retold right here, right now. Um, So the first thing to note about this story is just the timing of it. So it comes at the time of Passover, and we're told this, it says, two days before Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. Everyone at this time would have known what the Passover festival was. It's the annual celebration 
of the gate of the day, sorry, that God chose um, to rescue his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. God told Moses and Aaron to tell the community of Israel to take a lamb for their family and take some of the blood of this lamb and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses. And God says on the same night, I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over. Hence why it's called Passover. One of the best bits of advice I've ever been given, especially when it comes to reading the Old Testament, is to look for Jesus in every single passage. And it does really help to work through some of the trickier books that you have in the Old Testament, like Leviticus, for example. If you've been doing Bible in a year, you'll know exactly what I mean. Trying to look for Jesus in every single verse and knowing that it's all pointing towards his resurrection, it just makes it so much easier to work through. And it really just helps us to love the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. Um, and this is one of those such passages where we can look to the future and one of those that foreshadows Jesus' coming and resurrection. So we switch forward 1,500 years from the Passover and we're in the middle of the journey of Jesus to the cross, the lamb that is to be slain. It's by no coincidence that the timing of this festival coincides with Jesus' journey to the cross. At the first Passover, the blood of the lamb had changed everything for the Israelites and it changes everything for us. I remember a preacher many years ago illustrating the way that the blood actually would have been put onto the door frame. So we know it goes up the side and over the top. Um, and even the pattern created actually points to Jesus. So Tom, if you go to the next slide. So this is a, yeah, it's a very amateur picture. Well, you know I'm not very good at art, so that explains why. Um, so you can see it actually makes two crosses, the way that they cross over when you put the blood onto the door. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting, just seeing these little subtle moments, just how everything is pointing towards Jesus and pointing towards the cross. So after the Passover was the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which was a week-long festival where followers of God would rid their house of yeast. So why would they do this? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Do you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul is showing here that the leaven, or the yeast, it represents our sin. The feast demonstrates our need to completely eliminate this from our lives. God commands to completely remove yeast from the houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from Israel. Sin cuts us off from God. Eliminating sin is not something that we're able to do in our own strength. The imagery of that Passover lamb is used to show that there is something greater coming that will change our fortunes. It will make us righteous in the sight of God. And Paul writes in Romans, What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Until we truly grasp how dead in our sins we are, like Paul does, we're never going to be able to grasp the gospel in all its fullness and in all its glory. Sometimes our understanding of grace can, I think, lead us to diminish the seriousness of sin. Sometimes we can brush it off thinking, oh, we're covered by grace, it's fine. Which is true, we are covered by grace. But Jesus gave up his life to die the most brutal death to defeat sin. That's how serious sin is. We need to repent and do everything we can to guard ourselves against sin. Now, a group of people who didn't grasp this and didn't grasp this incredible truth were the chief priests and the scribes. Even though they were supposed to be preparing for the slaughter of many lambs, they're instead consumed with how to slaughter Jesus. They view the crowd of pilgrims just as an irritant, just getting in their way, stopping them from killing Jesus. They wanted to arrest and kill Jesus quietly, and it says that in verse 2. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Consumed by their selfish ambition, 
and their jealousy, their attention is taken away from what should have been a time of devotion and focusing in on God's incredible grace. Now, as we've seen from Mark's gospel already, and we're now in the second series of Mark, he doesn't hang around when he's telling a story. So immediately after two verses, we move destination from the center of Jerusalem to outside the city, a place called Bethany. Now, this town actually might ring a bell as it's mentioned 11 times in the New Testament. Um, It's mentioned at the raising of Lazarus, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday actually begins near Bethany, the lodging of Jesus during the week leading to his death, the location of our passage today, and also before the ascension of Jesus. So it's a really kind of um, important location that we come across. So why did Jesus actually spend so much time in Bethany? We see in this passage today that he he clearly feels relaxed here as he was reclining at the table. Now, was it down to good hospitality? It just got me thinking, wouldn't it be great if Welling could be like a modern-day Bethany? Somewhere that becomes part of the story through, among other things, good hospitality and making people feel welcome, relaxed, able to regain their energy. So is your home a home that is open to all? Or is it a bit more of a private place, open to family and just close friends? We need to make sure that we are welcoming to be this modern-day Bethany. So on this note of hospitality and being welcoming, I was reading an article yesterday on the um, displacement of Syrian refugees over the past few years. And there was a map just showing the number of refugees that each country in Europe um, allowed into their country and welcomed into their country. Now, Germany has welcomed almost 600,000, which is a significant amount more than any other country in Europe. And then straight after I read this article, I was reading through Leviticus. And it says in um, Leviticus 19, 33, 34, when a stranger sojourns, so that means just a temporarily stay, with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So in a time when the UK is actually looking to close the doors to the rest of Europe, I won't mention the B word, um, Germany are actually opening up their borders. I mean, what an example this is to other countries around Europe, but also to us. It's totally countercultural. So let's carry out this command of God, and let's love those that the Bible describes as a Um, a stranger among you. Um, Then in verse 3, it tells us exactly where the setting is in Bethany. It's at Simon the leper's house. Now, this is really, really important to understand the significance of this. As I was listening back to some of the previous sermons from the first Mark series, um, James actually described leprosy as not a disease, but actually as a total condition. Um, It was a physical condition. It was a social condition as well. They had to live outside the city walls. It was also a spiritual condition. They were thought to be cursed by God. And in Mark 1, he stretches out and he touches a leper to heal him. Now, Jesus didn't actually need to touch him to heal him. He could have done it like that. But he did this just to show his love and to show that he's welcoming everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It's not just Christianity. It's not just for those people that look a certain way, who sound a certain way. Jesus is here for everybody. And he consistently spends his time with those who are seen as the lowest of the low in society. And James posed this question at the time, what would the church be like if we were like this? If we were consistently reaching out to those who are seen as the lowest members of society? Leprosy is actually mentioned more than 40 times in the Bible. Jesus wants us to show how low he's willing to stoop so that he could save and to set us free. The amazing thing about the kingdom of God is that it works in complete opposite to our society. Um, The way that our society works is if you're wealthy, if you're clever, then you are the ones that go to the top and you are the ones that are in power. 
But the kingdom of God works in complete opposite to this. It's a bottom-up kingdom. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Give, and it will be given to you. Whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. If we understand this, and this changes our whole outlook on the poor and the less fortunate than ourselves, Jesus demonstrates the effect understanding the kingdom of God should actually have on us. This is in stark contrast to the priests and the scribes. While Jesus is extending a hand to those lepers and the nobodies at that time, they're panicking about losing their favor with Rome. And now a mystery woman enters the scene. She's not actually named in, um, in Mark at all. Um, and it says she comes with an alabaster jar of perfume. Precisely, it says in, in the uh, passage, it was pure nard. And actually, this is important to note because nard came from a plant that grew in the Himalayas at that time. So it was really, really rare. And this would have cost a whole year's wages. She then proceeds to break the flask and pour it over Jesus' head. And in other tellings of this moment, it states that she poured it over his feet as well. So I think that we can probably presume she covered his whole body in it. I mean, what a sacrifice. A whole year's wages on this perfume. And she's just broken it open and poured it over Jesus. And another example of someone who was also sacrificial with their offering, just a little bit earlier in Mark, is in Mark 12, which is the widow. And so in Mark 12, 41, I'll just go through the story. Um, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything in that she had, all she had to live on. The perfume that was sacrificed was actually 20,000 times more valuable than what the widow offered. But it means the same. Jesus is worth more to these two women than money. They are willing to throw everything away to step into his story. Having a look through the other Gospels helps us to solve the mystery of who this woman is. So in John, it tells us that the woman is actually Mary, who is a sister of Martha. And like I said in my introduction, it's so important just to note these subtle differences that you come across. Because Mark's trying to make the point here, but by not mentioning Mary's name, he is saying that she could be any one of us. We are all capable of this extravagant worship. So what led Mary to make this huge sacrifice of her most valuable possession, and why should we worship extravagantly? We know that from earlier in Luke, Mary actually sat at Jesus' feet listening. Martha was basically told off by Jesus because she was busying herself with tasks rather than sitting with Mary. Mary just got it. The one place that she wanted to be above all others was at the feet of Jesus. So how are we doing with this? Do we spend our time busying ourselves with the things of life that we miss out on spending time with Jesus? Mary's encounters with Jesus has a profound effect on her life. And whenever we come into contact with Jesus, it should have an effect on us like Mary. Just like Hannibal earlier, saying how it it requires a response when we come into the presence of Jesus. Um, And there are many instances in the Bible that document the presence of Jesus. Um, In Exodus, it talks about Moses coming down from the mountain, literally shining um, from his face. Um, In Zacchaeus, who was a, uh, sorry, in Luke, Zacchaeus, who was a dishonest tax collector, when he came into contact with Jesus, he stood up and he said to Jesus, look, Lord, here, now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. If we look at Mary, the effect was to make, take the most valuable thing of hers and offer it as an offering to Jesus. 
alongside the presence of Jesus, the truth of the gospel as well should be transforming us day by day. And this is what Mark is building up to in this gospel. Jesus took the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Because the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We now have an inheritance that is imperishable. God's plans for us are for welfare and not for evil, to give us future and a hope. This incredible news of the gospel requires a response. It requires a response of extravagant worship. So what does extravagant worship look like? I think, to be honest, that for each of us, it looks different. We can see that Mary's extravagant worship was to offer perfume worth a year's wages, and the widow's extravagant worship was to offer two coins. When worship is mentioned, we probably all immediately just think of sung worship, don't we? But actually, worship is our response in every single area of our life to what Jesus has done for us. It's all-encompassing. And the more I've thought and prayed about this, the more I believe that extravagant worship actually is not those big standout acts of worship. It's those everyday small acts that are away from the crowd, the ones that people don't see. And Mary's act of extravagant worship was at a small gathering at a former leper's house. The widow with the two coins, she wasn't expecting Jesus to be watching her. So, and Jesus even himself models this. When praying on the Mount of Olives, away from the crowd, in an act of obedience, he says, not my will, but yours be done. These are extravagant forms of worship done out of the limelight. So when was the last time that you would say that you worshipped in an extravagant way like Mary? So how do we extravagantly worship? So extravagant worship, it requires a change of heart, I think, and therefore also a mindset. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us with this. It takes the focus of us, and we start to look outward. Dave said a few weeks ago that God doesn't tell us to do things that aren't possible. They might not be possible through our own strength, but that's why we need the Holy Spirit, and that's why we have the Holy Spirit. I've gone into the habit recently, actually, of every day praying for the Holy Spirit. I've learned that I need to be dependent on it, and I need it to fill me, because I used to just forget about it far too often. In 1 Corinthians um, 3.16, which hopefully will come up, um, it says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What an amazing promise and what amazing truth this is. Um, I always like to think of pictures or parallels when it comes to understanding certain parts of the Bible. I find it just helps me to grasp it better. Um, so I thought of the Holy Spirit a bit like motor oil. Um, now, I actually have to double-check the purpose of oil in a car because I'm so bad with cars. I literally know nothing about it. Um, but it says on Wikipedia, which I fully trust, <laughs> um, the main function of motor oil is to reduce friction and wear on moving parts and to clean the engine from sludge, and it cools the engine by carrying heat away from moving parts. So number one, it reduces friction and wear on moving parts. I think we all need a bit of help, don't we, with reducing the wear and the tear on our minds and on our bodies. Number two, it cleans the engine from sludge. I think we definitely need the help of the Holy Spirit to remove the sludge or the sin and the effect that it has on our lives. And number three, it says it cools the engine by carrying heat away from moving parts. Sometimes when we get annoyed, when we get worked up, when we get angry, I think we need the Holy Spirit, don't we, just to come in and just to cool us down a bit. Lacking this proper lubrication... All the metal components in an engine, they'll just rub against each other, causing this premature wear. Everything just becomes clunky, becomes hard work. So how much premature wear do you think that you've had over the course of your life? We wouldn't even think of running our car without any oil in it. But for some reason, we can live our lives without a reliance on the Holy Spirit. 
We need to live in step with the Holy Spirit, and we need to be open to it, and we need to be asking for it to fill us every single day. Now, the next thing um, that we learn about extravagant worship is that it requires discipline. Um, now, if, it's, it's not the most attractive word in the world, is it, discipline? When we hear discipline, we go, oh, no, here we go. Um, and you might think that actually the type of worship that we're talking about, extravagant worship, is something that's just going to come easy. It's going to come creatively. It's just going to flow because it's extravagant after all. But only if you know the word of God and only if you know Jesus will this happen. And this comes through devotion. We need to withdraw from the chaos and business of life and spend some time just delving into God's words and communicating with him. For me, this really seems to be a correlation between how my quiet times are going and to how my life is going. It's not to say that if you spend time with God every day, everything's going to work out fine for you. That's not the way that it works. But it's just interesting to know that when I get God's word inside of me and I align my heart with the Father's heart, the more life just tends to flow. And Jesus modelled um, this devotion so well. He would often draw away from the crowds to a desolate place early in the morning to spend time with God. And sometimes it is hard. So Ro and I have just changed our devotion time from the evening to the morning. And sometimes it can feel like I'm climbing a mountain to pray. But by the way, this is literally what Jesus did. He climbed the Mount of Olives to pray in the morning. So I think that if Jesus is able to climb a literal mountain to do this, I'm pretty sure we can climb the metaphorical mountain in the morning to do this as well. So how is your quiet time going? Do you have a regular time where you, where you withdraw from the busyness um, of life? If you don't have this regular time in your day where you spend time with God, I would urge you to implement it. And you, you might think sometimes on Sundays when people are coming up and they're bringing words and they're sharing things, and you're like, oh, how do they seem to hear from God every single week? It's because they're building their life around these quiet times and they're speaking to Jesus, they're praying and they're reading their Bible, they're getting the word of God inside them. That's why. So that's why I'd really urge you to do this. Um, now, the story of Mary specifically shows us a way um, of extravagantly worshipping. And this is also in the use of our resources. The definition of extravagant is lacking restraint. And I think that we have to initially show a level of restraint with our resources to therefore be able to lack restraint in giving money to the poor um, and to the people less fortunate than us. If we lack restraint with how we steward our finances, then we're going to have no money left to offer, are we? Um, the Bible actually calls us to give our first fruits. Not to just give what we have at the end of the month after we spend all the money, how we want to spend it, but it's making a point of doing this at the start of the month. Um, me and Ro, we made a real thing of doing this when we got married, of making sure that we were spending our money, sending our money, sorry, and giving our money to church, to charities, and to various causes at the start of the month. It does mean that we have to sacrifice things, and it gets towards the end of the month. But we know that God delights in a cheerful giver. And we also know that without a doubt that God's going to provide for us everything that we need anyway. Um, so, as we put our trust in Jesus and we relinquish control, he's going to demonstrate his goodness and faithfulness. And he, that will build our faith in turn. Interestingly, Jesus actually talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Eleven of the 39 parables are talking about finances. This is a big deal for Jesus. So Why? Because Jesus knows that money can so easily become an idol for us. Dave was preaching on the verse, you shall love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength a few weeks back. If we're distracted by money, or worse, obsessed with it, and we make it an idol, how are we ever going to be able to carry out what Jesus says is that greatest commandment? 
And throughout the New Testament, there is an absolute battering ram of teaching throughout the Gospels on how we manage our money. Jesus is trying to break down our stubborn resistance and get us to loosen the grip on our resources. We just need to remember anyway that these resources are not even ours. Jesus has entrusted us with them. We're just stewards of them. And if we can grasp that, that changes our whole outlook on how we view our money. Um, it says in Luke 12, 34, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will also be. I find that one of the most challenging verses in the whole of the Bible. It's just great to just keep reminding yourself of that. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. Um, and then the final thing is, during this time, um, Mary understood this. She got this. But like the priests and the scribes earlier, the people who are actually watching this act, they didn't get it. Mark, in Mark, those guilty of actually scolding Mary are not named, but we discover in other Gospels that they're actually some of the disciples, and principally Judas. You would think that with the amount of time spent with Jesus, that these disciples would actually have a better grasp on this. But again, Mark, by not mentioning the disciples' name, he's making it clear that this can be us as well so easily. So do we get this like Mary? Or do we still hold money as an idol? The disciples also display their lack of authenticity in this moment. Isaac Watts, this is what he said about authenticity. The great God values not the service of men if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges our heart. He has no regard to the outward forms of worship if there be no inward adoration. If no devout affection be employed therein, it is therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly for God. Living out extravagant worship requires a change in heart. It requires discipline. It requires a reduction of dependency on our resources, and it requires authenticity. It is tough. Um, just to share some of our story, hopefully to encourage you. Um, so we moved to uh, Welling from East Grinstead. Uh, it's about a year and a half ago now. And before this, we lived in Chichester. In total, in, um, we've been married almost seven years now. We've actually lived in three different places. We've lived in over 10 different houses and flats. We used to move around literally every five to six months just to lodge with various people, just to help us to save money so that one day we could purchase a house. And this was tough, living in one room with all your things, especially when you got to get your keyboards in there, your guitars, computers. There was hardly anywhere to sleep, to be honest. Um, but for us, we wanted to be able to establish ourselves in an area so that we can have a house that we can use to bless others. And we really focused on stewarding our finances and our resources during this time. Later on, in an act of obedience, we moved from East Grinstead up to Welling. It made no sense whatsoever from an earthly viewpoint. No offence, Welling. Um, but God was calling us here. We just could not ignore this. Even now, when people find out we've moved from East Grinstead to Welling, the first question is always, why did you do that? And they always say it with the same look on their face. They look really confused. Um, it's a great conversation starter anyway, because we can just start talking about the church. Um, through this act of obedience, though, God has just blessed us immeasurably. So my work's managed to transfer up to this area really seamlessly. We've got an incredible house. We have the amazing opportunity of leading the worship team here as well. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And God wants you to step into this story as well. But it requires you to actually make a step into this lifestyle of extravagant worship. So, just to finish off then in um, Mark 14. During Jesus' response to the disciples, he makes clear of another meaning behind his body being anointed with a perfume. He says, she has anointed my body for burial. Jesus is pointing forward to his death. Jesus is about to die the type of death that does not permit the normal practice of anointing a corpse before burial. 
And then also five times in this passage, the Passover is mentioned. That's no coincidence. It was the blood of the Passover lamb that rescued God's people from judgment over death in Exodus. And very soon, the blood of the lamb is going to rescue God's people from judgment over death. And then in another stark contrast, in the very final verse we're looking at, following this incredible sacrifice and worship of Mary, we are faced with Judas selling out Jesus. Mary's sacrificed her perfume, that's a whole year's wages, while Judas is willing to betray Jesus for about a third of his year's wages. So how does this story impact us? We've got a choice. Who are we going to be in this story? Are we going to be the priests and the scribes who are so obsessed with their pride, popularity, religious practices that they miss the saviour in their midst? Are we going to be the disciples who, despite spending time with Jesus, just don't quite get it like Mary? Or are we going to be Mary who, through spending time with Jesus, is transformed and, as a response, demonstrates worship in an extravagant way? So I'm just wondering if I can get Greg um, and the band back up. So I feel there's kind of three responses to this. The first one, maybe this is your first time that you're hearing the gospel. Maybe it's your hundredth time, but you haven't yet given your life to Jesus. You haven't yet committed. Is this, to, is this day today the day that you need to be doing that? It doesn't matter what's happened in your life previously. That does not stand a chance against this amazing thing of grace and the amazing forgiveness of God. Step two, is there a step of obedience that you've been putting off, which you need to take? You feel like you've heard from God, but your thoughts are, ah, oh, it's too hard, it's too difficult. Maybe it's a life situation, maybe it's money related. What is that step of obedience that you actually need to take? And then the final one is, do you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Maybe it's been a while since you've really felt the power of the Spirit in you. Maybe you struggle to rely on the Holy Spirit every single day. No matter which it is for you, I believe that there is a response that everyone in here needs to make today to this.